in these verses, we get a little bit of a summary of what Romans is all about. And it's ultimately about the gospel. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, shall we? Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version because I'm a Christian. I'm just kidding. Romans chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, we come to this text this morning realizing we're unworthy to tackle this and exposit it, but by your Holy Spirit's strength and power, Uh, We know that you can illuminate this text to us, so would you bring application and comfort Holy Spirit as our teacher. We commit this time to you for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we began our exposition of the book of Romans last week. We did kind of an overview two weeks ago. And remember last week we saw who Paul was and who Christ is, the theme of the gospel, and then, of course, uh, who the Romans are and then who, of course, we are. And Paul's normal tempo would be to introduce himself in his letters and then address the people to whom he's writing. And then he would begin kind of cascading through the wonder of the doctrine of God before getting to the duty of God's people. Or you could say he would begin typically with what to believe. And then at the end of his letters, he would kind of morph into or kind of apply and go into how to behave. Um, But there's a big difference here in Romans. We're going to be in the what to believe part for about, I don't know, 11 chapters. And so we're not really going to get to the behavior point until Romans chapter 12. And yet, Paul has a very unique challenge before him that sets the book of Romans a little bit apart from some of his other epistles. And that is that Paul has never visited the church of Rome up until this point. So I want you to picture with me for a minute what you would say to someone whom you've never met before, and yet whom you're expecting to do ministry with, some type of a friendship or a partnership, but you've never been together yet. 
And, and, and as you go into that relationship, you write them something. There's, there's high expectations. There, are, there is kind of a shared eagerness to see what God's going to do and, and really a, a longing to be together. Let's just get together and do this, to see each other face to face. And Paul had not yet been face to face with the church in Rome when he writes this letter. This letter, of course, is written to an influential body of believers in what was arguably the most important and prominent city in the known world at that time, the city of Rome. And Paul is seeking, as we've been looking at this, he's seeking their help in funding his next pioneering venture to advance the gospel westward into Europe. And so he writes them a full, sweeping picture or explanation of the gospel message that he was going to preach, that he had been preaching, but that he was going to preach in Spain. And it's a message that starts with the righteousness of God juxtaposed against our sinful state. But before he gets to that, he first has to lay the groundwork. And the text that we're going to look at today, uh, these verses are that groundwork. And then we'll get to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which I argue outpunch their weight class and the fact that they're only two short verses, but incredibly foundational and important, not only to Romans, but for our faith. So we're going to see three things in our text together today. I hope you're taking notes, and here's what they are. Number one, we're going to see in verses 8 through 12, Paul's gratitude, and that we need to have gratitude uh, to God for others. Number two, we're going to see Paul's goal in verses 13 through 15, uh, why he wanted to partner with them. Uh, and what was holding him back. And then uh, we're going to see, uh, again, in verses 16 and 17, Paul's gospel. So let's begin in verse 8. And uh, we'll just be briefly in those first two, and we'll balance our time in the last one there. So real quick, let's just walk through the first two. First, Paul's gratitude. Notice again with me verse 8. Look at, Get your eyes on verse 8. He says, first, and this is a good first for all of us. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Uh, I didn't say this in the early service, but guys, that is my weekly and even morning prayer. I jot down every day three things I'm thankful for, and almost every day, it's not only my salvation, my family, but it's you. Uh, and so I echo Paul's gratitude here. He begins with gratitude. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Well, notice he says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, you want to circle that phrase, all the world. This is a little bit of hyperbole, a little bit of an exaggeration because their faith in Rome hadn't literally extended into the jungles of the Amazon yet at that point. But like a city on a hill, their faith had certainly reached to the furthest borders of the Roman Empire. And so when he says in all the world, he's saying in all of Rome, the Roman church's faith has been proclaimed well beyond the little border of your own city. And so, as he'll develop later in chapter 10, how can people hear the word of God unless someone proclaims it to them? And as servants of Christ, the Roman church were faithful to not be ashamed, but to boldly proclaim the gospel to an empire that was dark and an empire that was desperate to hear this good news. And we need that same type of boldness. I like what A.W. Pink says about the church. He says, if a church does not evangelize, it will fossilize. We, we need to be those who are ready to go with the good news. Not that the name of Pilgrim or the name of Micah or the name of Shoreline is known beyond our little 941 region. By no means. But 
that the name of Christ would be known, that our faith in Christ would be what is proclaimed. And we have plans this year to organize and strategize how we do evangelism in our community uh, this year. And we're excited about that, uh, that we're not going to fossilize. We're going to evangelize. So Paul does something interesting next. After saying, I thank God for your faith that's being proclaimed everywhere, he then does something you didn't expect. He calls God to the witness stand to attest that he, Paul, has kept the Roman church in his constant prayers. Look at verse 9. He says, For God, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And here's what I pray. I ask that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul is saying, hey, you may not have heard of me, but the far reaches of Christianity in the Roman Empire have heard of your faith, and God has heard my prayers for you. No one other than Paul would know how often and how constant his prayers were for them. No one except God himself who had actually been the one hearing Paul's prayers. Has this ever happened to you? You're like, I promise I'll be praying for you this week. And, and then you forget, right? And so then the person comes up to you next Sunday and says, hey, brother, thank you so much for praying for me. And you're like, ah, I didn't pray for you at all. And so you quickly kind of go, God, you know time. Lord, I pray for that person right now. And then you go, yeah, I was praying for you. <laughs> Just God understands, you know, sovereign time. So Paul wasn't saying, yeah, I've kind of, no, God is my witness. I have prayed for you constantly. And his prayer was that somehow by God's will that he'd be able to visit them, He'd be able to see them. He'd be able to equip them and encourage them. Let me remind you, this is a prayer for people he's never met. And he says, I'm constantly praying for you. Well, notice verse 11. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I hope the first part of verse 11 has been your heart during a time of quarantine. I just long to see you. I long to be with you. I want to be with the church so that, so that we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And Paul was thankful for their immovable trust in God and he had prayed for them. And there was an eager excitement to be with them and to encourage them even as they encouraged him. So that was Paul's gratitude and what he longed for. But notice his goal in verses 13 through 15, the second idea. Uh, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you. I, I wanted to come. I had an intention. It wasn't that I forgot about you. I wanted to be there. And, and we're not really sure what happened, but he says, but thus far I've been prevented. We don't know exactly what prevented Paul from getting to Rome. Um, but notice that his goal was that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So church, follow with me. Paul's desire was not to visit Rome with a camera on his neck. Well, they didn't have cameras then, but his desire was not to see the Pantheon. His desire was not to see the Colosseum. He wasn't there to go enjoy some good Italian food because that's what Rome is known for. No, his idea was not, and his goal was not, hey, I've got this bucket list and Rome's on the list. I got to check it off. No, his goal in visiting them was to see gospel fruit in the lives of the Roman Christians. So notice that he says in verse 14, this very important phrase, he says, I am under obligation. Would you circle that phrase, I'm under obligation? Another way of saying that, another way of translating that is, I am a debtor. 
Well, who are you a debtor to, Paul? Who are you under obligation to? He says, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. Now, when he says Greeks, of course, this is uh, referring to those who were cultured. Um, whereas when he says barbarians, maybe some of you bristled when we read that earlier, like, whoa, that's a racial slur. Paul's not being offensive and saying, yeah, those people are barbarians. Uh, that is actually a phrase that simply meant non-Greeks. So he's saying, uh, I'm under obligation to those in the Greco-Roman influence and those who are outside of that influence. And then he says both to wise and to foolish. That could either mean the same thing, it's to Greeks and to non-Greeks, those who are ignorant of uh, the civilization, or it could just be what it means, that it's both to wise and to foolish. Either way, here's what I want you to walk away with. Paul is saying, I'm under obligation to the entire span of Gentile peoples. But why would Paul say, I'm under obligation? Why would he say that? Uh, essentially, he's saying, I'm a debtor. And there's really two ways to become a debtor, right? There's two ways to get into debt. Actually, as a country, there's a lot of, there's trillions of ways to get into debt. Um, but <laughs> there's really two essential ways, okay? The first way is when you borrow money from someone and then you have to pay it back. So you ask your friend, hey, there's something going on with GameStop and I need, you to, I need to borrow 10 grand. So <laughs> let me borrow $10,000 because uh, this is my retirement right here. And so you take your $10,000 borrowed money and you go into the market when the money was overvalued and very high, which a lot of people did. And then the bottom drops out and you realize, oops, I'm broke and now I owe you, and you know what? The stock market is not a Vegas casino, and until you pay your friend back, you are indebted to them. That's the first way you go into debt, uh, and there's many more than this, but, but the second main way to be a debtor is if I were saving for my retirement the wise way, which is in low-cost index funds, <clears throat> if I were doing it the wise way, and now I've got a little bit of wealth, and I want to pass some of that on to a friend of mine. I want to give them $10,000. And by the way, don't come up to me like the person did after first service and say, I'm a friend, right? Please don't do that, okay? So I, I want to pass $10,000 on to a friend. Uh, and yet, what I do is I say, could you give me, or could you give that person this 10? I'm going to give it to you to hand to them. Can you hold this $10,000 and pass this money along to so-and-so? Now, until you do that, in that awkward little moment where you're kind of thumbing through the money going, hmm, in that little moment, you are under obligation, right, to steward that money that I gave you. You're entrusted to do the right thing by passing it along to the person I asked you to give it to. And I think that's the way that Paul means that he's a debtor here, that he's under obligation. It's not that he borrowed money from someone and he needs to pay it back to the Gentiles. It's that God has entrusted to him a stewardship, and he wants to be faithful with that stewardship. So Paul's intention, his obligation, is to just give his life in service to Christ as a preacher of the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. And until his life was spent doing just that, which it was eventually, years later, spent doing that, until that time, he was a debtor. And so he's eager. He's eager to get to Rome, not only to herald the good news through the church, you know, having their resources to take the gospel beyond them. He also says, I want to preach the gospel to you as well. Church, do you know that we don't just preach the gospel to unbelievers, right? We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. 
you and I, even as a pastor, every morning I need to wake up and be reminded of Christ's finished work on my behalf, lest I wake up and go, I'm going to go for it today in my own power, in my own good works, in my own esteem, in my own Disney kind of like fulfilled life. I just need to be someone who does great things and I've got it within me. No, that's not the gospel. I need to be reminded that I'm empty and that I cling to the cross as we just sang. And so Paul says, I'm not just going to preach the gospel through you. I'm going to preach it to you. And then he begins, starting in verse 16, to what many people believe. He begins to uh, bring a treatise uh, and what chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, many people believe is kind of the summary of the entire gospel or the entire book of Romans. And these two verses are short, but like I said earlier, they absolutely outpunch their weight as far as how important they are in comparison that they're only two short verses. And in these verses, we get a little bit of a summary of what Romans is all about. And it's ultimately about the gospel. So look at these verses with me as we look at Paul's gospel. He says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, you know, we could do an entire, Micah, we could do an entire sermon series just called Not Ashamed and just spend, you know, months just on these two verses. Uh, And so instead of doing that, though, um, let's just spend a minute here in three quarters of a sermon trying to kind of go through these two verses. And to do this, I think let's just break it down into three different, three different phrases, okay? So the first phrase, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God. Contrary to many evangelistic presentations, the gospel does not begin with you. Amen. We like to say, share the gospel. Well, I was a sinner. And I would say, whoops, you, need to, you didn't rewind far enough. Remember when we actually put VHSs in and tapes? You remember tapes? put tapes in and you hit rewind and you go all the way back. Some people are nodding their heads. Yeah, 80s. And you rewind all the way back. Uh, If you share your testimony and your testimony begins with, I was a sinner. Well, listen, you haven't gone further enough back. You need to rewind further. The gospel doesn't begin with you. It begins with God. I like what Leon Morris says about Romans. He says, God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. In our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, and the like, we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There is nothing like it elsewhere. See, the gospel does not begin with us. It begins with God's attributes. In this case, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of of God. Uh, And so whenever someone asks you to explain the gospel, begin with God. Now, some people make the case that there may have been a group of people in Rome who were sort of despising the simplicity of the gospel. And because they despised how simple it was, Paul is asserting his confidence in it to save. I'm not sure if that's the case, um, but I like what Barclay says about this. He says, um, Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi. He'd been chased out of Thessalonica. He'd been smuggled out of Berea, laughed at in Athens. He had preached in Corinth where his message was foolishness to the Greeks 
and a stumbling block to the Jews. And out of that background, Paul declared that he was proud of the gospel. Other people assert that because the gospel was foolishness to the Greeks, they may have been tempted to just be ashamed of proclaiming that. But Paul says it's not something to be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. It's the power of God to save. So listen, the gospel is not just good advice. It's power. And it's not just empty power. It's power to save. And so he begins with this great understanding that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, then look at this next phrase. He said, it's for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So now we have a new category of people, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But I want to uh, emphasize that the, only the gospel provides the power to save sinners. And we'll dive into the concept of the rightness of God's wrath in the next few weeks as we look at verses 18 through 32 and how mankind has kind of devolved and how no one is without excuse, that all stand condemned because all have sinned. But notice with me here in this verse, not the universalism of salvation, but the universality of salvation. Let me explain that. Paul says the gospel is the power of God to save, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, It's not merely to everyone, which would be the false heresy of universalism. We reject universalism that says everyone who has been born will be saved. We reject that because the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul says the gospel is the power of God to save both Jew and Gentile alike. So follow with me. We don't emphasize universalism, but universality. In other words, there's not a separate gospel for the Jew that's different and unique to a separate gospel for the Gentile. This same good news is universal. You don't have to be, and they wrestled with this in the early church. You don't have to become a Jew to come to Christ. You don't have to go through these ceremonial laws and observances to come to Christ. You just come to Christ. You repent and trust Christ. And so this good news is not going to change depending on Jew or Greek. It's not going to change depending on your generation. It's not going to change depending on your ethnic audience. And so the gospel message came first historically in the plan of God to the Jew, but it wasn't a message solely for the Jew. It also has power to save the Gentile. And we all should amen that if you're a Gentile this morning. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, salvation is such an extensive topic. I think we will spend eternity unpacking it. But let's just for a minute look at some things we're saved from and what we're saved to. When someone asks you, what does it mean you're saved? I'd love for you to have this little chart in your mind. So we are saved from, but we're also saved to. We are saved from, notice on the screen, God's wrath. We are saved from hostility to God. We are saved from alienation from God. Of course, Jesus' name means that we've been saved from sin. We've been saved from being lost. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And we've been saved from futility. And a life apart from Christ is indeed a life of futility. But notice what we're saved to, and we often forget this. We are saved to right standing with God. We're saved to holiness. We're saved to freedom and fellowship with God. We were in the state of alienation, but now we have fellowship. We have been saved to everlasting life, and we've been saved not by good works, but we've been saved to good works. 
as the hymn says that we all know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like the person sitting next to me. Yes, that's true. But also who saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was saved from and saved to. It's amazing grace. Well, look at this next phrase, and this is where I want to spend a lot of our time. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you're going to highlight or mark up any part of your Bible, this would be the part to mark up in Romans chapter 1. This is perhaps the most important phrase in the entire book of Romans. Uh, so if you even have a borrowed Bible, just go ahead and highlight it. They'll appreciate it. Circle it, underline it. I like what uh, Charles Cranfield paraphrased uh, this verse when he said, For in it, that is in the gospel as it's being preached, a righteous status, which is God's gift, is being revealed, and so offered to men. A righteous status, which is altogether by faith. Now Paul says in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's an important word. The word means it's disclosed or literally it is unveiled. The gospel unveils the righteousness of God. Now, what does he mean by that? What what do you mean the righteousness of God? Well, you could say this is God's uprightness. You could say it's all at once an attribute, an activity, and an achievement. And in relation to man, God's righteousness means for you as a man, as a woman, to be in right standing or to be justified or to be right with God, to be in right standing with God. Andrew Murray says this declaration is even greater when we understand that this is the righteousness of God given to the believer. It's not the righteousness of even the most holy man, nor is it the righteousness of innocent Adam in Eden. No, it is God's righteousness. The righteousness which is under justification is one characterized by the perfection belonging to all that God is and does. It is a God righteousness. So the gospel reveals to us, you could say, God-righteousness, and it comes to the believer, notice with me in the text, from faith for faith. Now that is very difficult. A lot of commentators aren't sure what to do with that. It could mean one of these three. It could mean from the beginning to the end of your faith. So just the day you believe to the day you're in glory, from the beginning to then. Or it could mean from the days of Habakkuk, which we're about to look at, to today. Or maybe from a lower degree of faith to a higher degree to a higher degree. I'm not sure which one, but praise God that it is not by my works, my ethnicity, my moral perfection, my financial contribution, my attractiveness, because I'm definitely sunk in that regard. It's not by anything within me that qualifies me to be the recipient of the righteousness of God. No, you and I are not justified by these things. We are declared right with God by faith alone. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, that is why faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. Faith it is that brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. The Spirit in turn renders the heart glad and free as the law demands, and then good works proceed from faith itself. Now, you notice that Paul says, as it is written, and then he quotes, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. A lot of people, is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? We're just going to go with Habakkuk. And so um, raise your hand if you were here when we studied Habakkuk uh, a few years ago. Who was here? Okay, yeah, both of you were here during that study. Good to know. 
Now, in case you don't remember every sermon that has been preached here at Shoreline from memory, which you should, word for word, every single cringy dad joke that I've ever uttered, which it's growing, that list is growing by quite a lot. Just to refresh you, when we studied this a few years ago, we studied through um, the book of Habakkuk, which I'd argue many of us didn't have our quiet times this morning in the book of Habakkuk. What happens in that book is that the prophet is looking around at sinful Israel and he begins to get triggered and he begins to utter his complaint to God. And in effect, he's lamenting to God saying, how long, Lord, how long do we need to wait for justice? The people around here are sinful. Your people are sinful and they need to be corrected. Has this ever happened to you where you look around at our nation, you look around at the people of God who use that moniker here in America or here in Western culture around the world and you go, how long, O Lord? When will the judge of the earth do right? Step in and judge the church. Let's do something, God, please. Your people are so fickle and they have a name, but they don't actually walk with you. God, I'm tired of this. Please send judgment on the church. Send judgment on our nation. Let's, let's right this ship. Am I the only one who just looks out and... and Righteous anger a little bit. Well, here's the thing. Habakkuk is doing that. And the answer that God provides to him is not what he expected. God, in effect, comes and says, judgment's coming. But it's coming by the hand of the evil Babylonians. Habakkuk's like, well, hang on. (laughs) I was expecting justice, not Babylon. I mean, that seems less fair. Like, we're sinful, and now you're going to bring a more sinful people, a less holy people, to judge people who are less evil. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, God. It doesn't seem fair. We're not as bad as the Babylonians. Uh, And yet, in the end, Habakkuk comes to a resolve that we all need to come through in times of trouble, and that is that I will wait upon God and I will trust in him. And so the central point in the book of Habakkuk is that the wicked will die, but the righteous will live by faith. He was seeking to urge believers in God to live out a patient and active and tenacious faith in the Lord, even though they were facing incredible or about to face incredible adversity. Now, it may be glaringly obvious, but I do want to make this point. When Habakkuk says the righteous will live by faith, he does not mean faith the way we sometimes mean it, just in this little empty trivia type way, like mental assent. Like, yeah, I have faith in God. Yeah, I said a prayer when I was like, I don't know, eight months old. I said a prayer and, and I'm good. And, and so I, I don't, yeah, I, I can answer facts about Jesus. I, I, let's do Bible trivia. I got all the stats. I know where he was born. I knew where he was raised. We're not talking about mental assent. We're not talking about belief in a set of facts and figures. And we're not also referring to dead catechism faith where you come in and you attend and you do the motions, uh, but it's void of emotion, meaning it's void of truth. It's void of personal understanding. Neither are we talking about how you can just like hang in there with doctrinal uh, conversations like, yeah, I understand those words and I can use the big words and the fluff words as well. No, that's not what he's referring to. He's referring uh, to this ultimate idea of standing before God and holding on, trusting in God and standing upright in the face of adversity. He says this isn't just like mental assent or, or dead faith. This is, this is fully trusting in him. And so he says, the righteous, the just shall live by that sort of faith. And so here in Romans, Paul is quoting that phrase in Habakkuk to say, that is how we're declared right with God. That's how we're justified. 
That's how the righteousness of God is imputed to us. It's given to those who are living out a patient, active, tenacious trust in God. His righteousness, his uprightness is imputed to us. You could say gifted to we who are undeserving, but it's gifted to us by faith. The gospel reveals to us the righteousness of God. And yet today, people are wondering throughout time, how do I get right with God? How do I get in right standing with God? There's, of course, people that want to be religious. So they ask that question. How do I get right with God? The more popular thing today is like spiritual. Oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm an SBNR. I'm spiritual. I like spirituality. But at the end of the day, I think I'm doing these things spiritually that make me right with God. God's impressed with yoga pants. He's impressed with vegan eating. And so because of that, now I'm in right standing. But most Americans believe that you achieve right standing with God by dying. In other words, they believe in justification by death. Here's what I mean. Uh, I'm justified. Well, yeah, uh, if I die, then I'll be in heaven because if I'm not alive on earth, I'm in heaven. That's justification by death. As long as I die, then I'm justified. And yet, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that death won't justify us. Death will bring us trembling before God at his judgment seat. And the reality is nothing we did justified us. It's in faith alone. We're justified by faith alone, saved by grace alone, redeemed from our sin by Christ alone. So the gospel reveals to us the righteousness of God has not been earned by us, but by faith, that, uh, by faith it has been imputed to us. So we place our faith in the finished work of Christ at Calvary on our behalf. And now I say all that, I'm teeing up here. I'm saying all that because those of you who are in Christ have done that. You've repented of your sin, you've trusted Christ, and you've thrown yourself wholly upon the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. You believe in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension, the return of Christ. And you said, there's no other way I can be saved except I'm standing before the Father and it's Christ alone. And yet, some of you today may not have repented of your sin. And you say, well, like I go to church and I do these things and so God will understand. No, if you've not repented of your sin, you will be crushed under the awful wrath of God against your treasonous unlawlessness. And so I want to I want to beseech you this morning, repent, reject your sin, confess that you are guilty of what people call cosmic treason and throw yourself upon the work of Christ because Jesus alone saves. Jesus' blood alone cleanses us from all sin. So bring nothing this morning, no, no purse to buy it, no works to achieve it, no contribution to give except your dead heart and your desperation and at the mercy of God exchange this morning your sin for his grace and his kindness. Jesus stands ready to save this morning. Will you trust Christ? You see, this is the gospel. And so Paul begins to explain the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news that you and I as saints have received and it's transformed our lives. And we can be in right relationship and have, as I opened the service this morning, have a smile in our heart and on our lips because we're now in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And next week, Little spoiler alert, we're going to see in verse 18 through 32, we'll do just 18 to 25, so we'll spend two weeks on this next uh, section, and Paul's going to basically give us the good news that he just gave us, set against the backdrop of very bad news. And so if you read ahead a little bit, you'll see it's this really, it kind of is sad to read, it's a little bit 
discouraging. But what I want you to do is not go, oh, you know what? There's my neighbor in uh, verse 29. Yep. Hey, neighbor, I was thinking of a verse for you, and uh, here it is. I don't want you to do that. I want you to see your own sinful state uh, before Christ saved you. And so I want to encourage you to read ahead, and we'll see the bad news as we see the context of the good news. Now, today before we close, though, just kind of reading through this, we like to make application every, every study. I was like, how do we apply this? Because there's so much application. But with this opening section, Paul is saying, hey, I, I want to do ministry with you and to you. And so I really see kind of seven marks or attributes of Christian service in this text that we would all do well to emulate. So would you jot these down? Seven aspects of Christian service. Now, you might be in a vocation, in a vocation serving in ministry. You might be serving your family. You may be serving uh, in a work situation. You may be serving at the, the marketplace or at school in your community. So these apply really across the board. Uh, so seven ways that this text uh, really applies to Christian service. Number one, if you're taking out Christian service includes gratitude. Notice that Paul thanks God through Jesus Christ. Now please don't sidestep that idea. It is through Jesus that we pray, John 14, 14. It is through Jesus that we worship, Hebrews 13, 15. It is through Jesus we obtain grace and truth, John 1, 17. It's through Jesus that we can do all things that have been ordained for us, even the trials, as Philippians 4, 13 tells us. And it's through Jesus that our legal standing before the Father is mediated, 1 Timothy 2, 5. And here, according to Paul, it's not because of the fruit or the good blessings or all that is going well that I extend gratitude. It's through Jesus. I like what John MacArthur says. He says, superficial believers are seldom satisfied and therefore seldom thankful. Because they focus on their own appetites for things of the world, they're more often resentful than thankful. A thankless heart is a selfish, self-centered, legalistic heart. And I love this part. Paul had a thankful heart because he continually focused on what God was doing in his own life, in the lives of other faithful believers, and in the advancement of his kingdom throughout the world. See, Paul's eyes were on the, raw, the right thing. And he was thankful and expresses his gratitude. And I think in Christian service, we have to thank God that he's called us to minister. Number two, Christian service includes prayer. Notice that Paul was constantly in prayer for gospel fruit, even though he had never met these people. Lockyer says the apostle was not only a great thinker, theologian, missionary, he was also a great intercessor. Anytime you want to evaluate a pastor or a minister or a ministry where there's an absence of prayer, what you observe often is that those ministries or those people are very maybe trusting in their own resources. They're putting maybe too much trust, not maybe, they're putting too much trust in their own abilities, in their own uh, achievements, their own activities, rather than what we know is prayer is saying, God, I don't have the resources. I, I need you, so help me. And so Paul reminds us that Christian service includes prayer. Number three, Christian service includes both giving and receiving. Notice he says in verse 12, he expects to be mutually encouraged by their faith, even as they're encouraged by his. So I love this. Paul wasn't expecting merely to be the giver of ministry, but also anticipated receiving from them. And doesn't this show great humility? When we realize that we are not God's gift to ministry, <laughs> that we're not, hey, I, 
put me in, coach. I'm right here. I'm on the stage, and here I've got something to say. No, I've got something to receive. And so I just want you to know, your pastors, we, when we come together uh, to like, serve and to minister, we are receiving a blessing back. It's not a one-sided street. I love what Chuck Smith said. He said, you cannot minister to others without being ministered to yourself. So true. We minister to others, and we also are ministered back. Number four, Christian service includes stewardship. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel by Jesus for the church in Rome, and he wanted to be a good steward of what God had given him. And in the same way, you and I, we must be faithful with what we've been entrusted with. We can't shrink back if God's given us gifts, influence, or advantages. I wonder if you feel this way. Do you feel the way Paul did to the Gentiles? Like, have you ever thought about this? I am indebted to Lakewood Ranch. Have you ever thought, like, I am a debtor to my secular humanistic friends. If you have connections with people, you have friends in the LGBTQ plus community, do you look at them and say, I am indebted, I am a debtor to see you in this community, one to saving faith. So you and I have been entrusted with the gospel. So as we are commissioned out later this morning, let's realize we're a debtor to bring the gospel to this community. Well, not only that, but number five, Christian service includes eagerness. I love this. In verse 15, Paul indicates he's eager to preach at Rome. And the word means more than just hopeful. You could actually argue that it means passionately poised. I love that. I love, he's like ready to go. He's, he's on the starting block. He's waiting for the gun to go off like I'm going to be on Saturday at the Bridge of Life 5K. I'm going to be ready to go and run my slow time. I'm ready. Just let's go. Let's do it. Let's, let's go for it. I'm poised with passion to engage in whatever God has requested of me. Would that the church had people like this ready to go. Like, man, I'm ready to serve like a boss. Well, maybe not like a boss, maybe like a servant. Like, I'm ready to serve in any area that's needed. Not because I'm required to, but because I'm restless otherwise. And when we have servants like that who are just eager, like, it's not, oh, I got to work in kids ministry. It's, where are the kids? Oh, wait, we're evangelizing the next generation. And the, the, this is low-hanging fruit. And most kids come to faith between 4 and 14. Awesome. Like, put me on every week. I'm there to serve. I want to dive in. We want people who are ready and eager to serve, not sitting idly by criticizing those who are serving, but who get in the arena and expend their own blood, sweat, and tears. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, oh, it is grand to find a man so little entangled that he can go where God would have him go and can go at once. I want to live that type of eagerness. Lord, what do you have for me today? I'm ready to serve. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to give my life as Jesus did to serve others. Number six, Christian service includes boldness. Boldness. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And as we serve others, we need to not be ashamed. Church, some people are. Some people are ashamed. Some people are afraid. They're afraid of government. They're afraid of peer pressure. They're afraid of family and friends. They're afraid of the arguments that perceive to be against the faith. And they're not willing to stand up. They're not willing to stand out. They just, let's just maintain status quo. Don't upset the apple cart. Keep everyone happy. Don't out me. I don't want you to know what I actually stand for. But brothers and sisters, this isn't possible. The gospel, the Bible doesn't allow neutrality on issues like sexuality, gender, race, identity, ethics, life and death. 
or theology. In those areas, the Bible's crystal clear and the gospel's bold. And so we must contend earnestly like Jude did for the faith. And listen, that means not being a jerk for Jesus. That means having holy and humble boldness, holy and humble boldness to step up and speak out when needed, especially when it's not in fashion. And we'll see that next week when we unpack the wrath of God. That's a word we don't preach on enough, the wrath of God uh, in light of sin. Uh, I have this um, quote in my office that I'm reminded of every time I do counseling with a couple or with a believer. Uh, It's by William Tyndale. And it's just a good reminder every time I'm counseling someone. He says, Christ is with us until the world's end. Therefore, let his little flock be bold. We need boldness as we serve. Let's not shrink back and be afraid. Let's be bold. Finally, number seven, as we conclude this, Christian service includes faith. It was their faith that Paul says would be mutually encouraged when he came to visit. It was their faith that had been extended in all the known world. And like those who lived in Habakkuk's day, we too can only live our righteous lives by faith. And that includes serving God. Oh, that more of Christ's servants would trust him, not their seminary education, not their church attendance, not their annual budgets, not even their theological traditions, but to serve Christ like Paul is to utterly depend on him by faith. May we serve him in that way. Well, as we close, we're going to sing the song we've been singing all year. Take the world. (laughs) You can take the world, but just give give me Jesus. And so would you stand with me as we close and conclude? I want to read to you a quote about Christ by McLeod. McLeod says, Christ is the total answer. Christ puts us right with God. All our sins forgiven, our reputations vindicated, our names enrolled in the family register of God. We have exactly the same relationship to God as Jesus Christ. He's begotten, we are adopted, and in its way, that is a mighty difference. But he goes on to say this. There's no difference in our rights. An adopted son has the same rights as a natural son. We have fellowship with Christ in his whole standing before God. God in Christ has put us absolutely right. He has dealt with all the guilt of our sin. So thus, may we serve Jesus by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Father, we pray this morning that we would not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save. Lord, give us the boldness to take that message out. Uh, It will be offensive to some and it will be light and truth and hope for many others. So Lord, give us the boldness today to declare, take the world, but give me Jesus. And may we have the gospel on our lips, in our lives, evidence, Lord, not just by our words, but also by our deeds. We love you. We ask you to bless the rest of our gathering today in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.